Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is today. I am very pleased to welcome Umberto Valle to Voices. Together with his brother Bernardo, Umberto is the owner of Poggio Trevalli in Marema in Tuscany, and this year they won Best Biodynamic Red Wine in the Wine Without Walls selection, which we held here in Verona the week before Vinitali. So congratulations, Umberto, on your trophy, and thank you for coming today. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me, actually. Well, I want to talk about your background and, and the wine and the vineyard. I know that you started your vineyard Poggio Trevalli in Tuscany in 1998, but really you're from Puglia. Actually, my family is from Naples. Oh, wow. We had a family farm in Puglia, and that's where my brother and I learned how to, how to farm, actually. So what made you choose Tuscany? Uh, it's a long story. It, it, it all dates back to the mid-80s, early 90s, with the European Union opening up to the eastern countries being the European farming economy heavily dependent on the European subsidies, together with my brother, we thought if the subsidies are inevitably going to go down per head. Sad but true. It, well, I mean, it's, it was inevitable. It was clear. And I think at that back in those days, it was also stated, so it was no major surprise. So together, we started to think, okay, if we want to still farm, we need to get into um, uh, a market which is not so heavily dependent on the subsidies. And the wine at that time was, frankly, the only one uh, which gave us the, let's say, the guarantees, gave us the, 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 the chance to start a business completely free from the European legislation, the European subsidies. That's so interesting. My father-in-law has a sheep farm in the north of England. And now, of course, after Brexit, they lost all of their subsidies as well. So I understand the problems it causes. But you're quite right. Wine didn't need that subsidy. And it still doesn't, actually. Especially in Tuscany. Well, Tuscany is a... It's a it's it's a nice spot and it's a sort of a brand which helps the sales. It helps market wise, marketing wise. Actually, we moved to Tuscany exactly for this reason. Together with friends who already, first of all, my brother and I have a quite a big farm down in Puglia. The family farm was three three hundred and fifty hectares. Oh wow! Of which eighty were vines. So we learned how to farm on a quite large scale. So the process of growing the grapes was nothing new to us. When it comes to the winemaking, it was all completely new because we used to literally do the wine in the garage, in the, in the horse boxes. When we had done <laughs> yeah, it's true, it's true. So 
it was we used to have um, we used to work with a guy from Veneto, an old man from Veneto who was quite skilled in the wine making. He was very skilled in wine drinking. Uh, yes, there are a lot of men in Veneto who are very skilled at wine drinking. Yeah, so it was it was kind of skilled in making wine, but it was nothing more, you know, that the the wine that couldn't last over a season. So from September, let's say, it roughly made it past June the following years. So you had to drink it all up quickly. Right. I never understood if that was the point of making the wine that way or it just happened to come out <laughs> that way. I never, never really got it. But talking with friends who was were at the time making wine in Puglia, everybody kind of suggested us, listen, it, you can make it, but you need to move on a really large scale. So it has to be a big operation. If you want to work in a smaller uh, market, if you want to manage a small uh, farm, then you have to move either to Tuscany or to Piedmont. Right. Being from Naples, Piedmont is too far away. Marima was quite the, the, the sweet spot because it's so close to the seaside. And back in those days, it was like um, a discovery for almost all the big names in the Chianti area and the Brunello area. And so we kind of uh, jumped on a wagon that was kind of rolling nicely and smoothly. And we were, uh, I don't know if skilled or lucky, but anyway, we moved to Tuscany in the mid-90s. And then we finally bought the farm that we are managing now back in 1998 yes well it's such a good story of of deciding to go there you went down from 350 hectares to now you have 13 i believe so a big change but one of the interesting things about poggio trevalli is that from the beginning your goal was to produce wines in an artisanal way and really link them to the territory and respect the local traditions. You know, as you said, you didn't want to be a big commercial enterprise. So what made you want this sort of artisan, very hands-on style of winemaking? Because it was kind of a reaction to the size of the operation that we were managing in Puglia. We used to basically, beside the vines, we used to supply the uh, Nestle company with the vegetables meant for their frozen industry. Oh, wow. Uh, so we had, we learned a lot about the farming and the, the industry behind the, the agricultural product. And we decided, listen, it's a, it, it is not our world. If we want to do something which carries our name, we have to move in a different direction. Uh, starting from 1985, I think it was 1989 or early 90s anyway, we converted part of the farm to organic farming. So we were seeding and harvesting durum wheat, organically grown. So we started our experience with the organic farming quite early. And I'm talking about 30 plus years ago. almost. Um, when we moved to Tuscany, it was clear that as the wine to be to be a good wine doesn't really need high yields in the field. It was quite obvious that there was no need for chemical compounds to be used in the in the wine in the in the wine farming in the vine farming, and so we decided straight away to to apply to the organic method. And then shortly after, we got in touch with uh, Stefano Bellotti and Nicolas Jolie, 
And the swift from the organic to the biodynamic was almost natural. Yeah, it's it. This is such a good thing happening for the environment too, mm-hmm. because you know, using no chemical fertilizers, no chemical pesticides, no nothing artificial or synthetic, you know, ever gets to the grapes when you're working this way. So when you're doing your your cellar practice, your winemaking, are you using sort of spontaneous fermentation or are you using yeast directly from your vineyards? Uh, how are you rolling your organic side of things into the winemaking process? Okay, it's, uh, this is, could, be, could be an interesting story. At the very beginning, uh, we hired a consultant and we were following quite a strict protocol which implied the use of sulfite, the use of selected yeasts and on and on and on. So the first harvest was has been the, the 1998, and the first one on the market was 1999. Then in 2003, the summer of 2003 was one of the hottest on record. I remember very well. It was really boiling hot. What happened was that we had um, one hectare of Merlot, which we planted in year 2000. So it was a very young plant, no irrigation system, really hot. And when it came to August the 10th, it was August the 8th, actually. Together with my brother, we said, listen, it's either we harvest or we lose the grape. What are we going to do? The problem being that all the, the suppliers of the enological products, the enological support things like yeast, sulfide, and all this kind of stuff were closed. So we said, okay, well, how, how can we ferment the wine without the grapes without yeasts? And we said, well... Vittorio, that was the name of the Veneto guy, never used anything. Let's do his way and see what happens. And so everything went well, actually. <laughs> we used we used a, we paid a little bit more attention. Uh, we, by, by then, we, know, we knew a little bit more. Well, we knew quite a lot more about the winemaking procedures, process, and the knowledge of winemaking. And so the Merlot came out, not a superb wine. It was a young wine. It was really hot. But the wine came out well. And so we start questioning ourselves, why should, do we really want to buy yeasts? Do we really want to buy nutrients for the yeasts and on and on and on? And so we started to think, well, let's make it a, another try. And we did the same try with the Sangiovese land, same vintage. And starting from the year after, we never bought yeasts anymore, just because the, we realized that they were, they were not needed. As not using yeasts, actually, you don't need, really need to use anything. You have to pay a lot of attention to, I don't know how much you want me to get into the parameters of the wine making in, the, in, in spontaneous fermentation. Could be boring. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people who listen are, are very wine nerdy, but I think we can leave it at spontaneous fermentation because everybody knows what that means. But you're also using cement for, you know, cement tanks yeah. for your wine. Why did you choose cement? Well, basically, cement is uh, almost all the wineries in Maremma, in Tuscany, I would say, in Tuscany, were built around concrete baths. Now, the, the big difference between concrete vats and stainless steel tanks is how easily you can sanitize the steel versus the cement. Exactly. So, but on the other hand, the steel is so thin, the wall of, the, of a stainless steel tank is so thin 
that the wine inside is really exposed to the difference in temperature. So you need to either you control the, the temperature of the vat or you need to control the temperature of the old winery. Cement as the, the each concrete vat as walls so thick that before the wine actually feels the difference in temperature, it takes a really long time. So at the end of the fermentation, for instance, the wine stays warm and that helps the, the malolactic fermentation to happen spontaneously. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, so in the end, what we do is for most of the wine, we ferment in stainless steel tank and then refine and age the wine in concrete. When I make the capo cuore, when I make the, the wine, which start from um, whole cluster or mostly whole cluster, then I use completely open concrete vats. And the reason for that is because it's, they're so much more easy to, to maintain, to keep and to load and unload rather than a wooden one. The steel, again, wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. Well, let's talk about this wine. This is the wine that won the trophy. It was Toscana EGT Sangiovese Vino Biologico Capo Cuori 2021. So tell me about this wine. It's 100% Sangiovese. Is it a single vineyard? No, 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 no. What happens is that, um, okay, we usually harvest less than a hectare a day, which is about 6,000 kilograms of grapes per day. What we do is we have an early harvest so that the Sangiovese that comes in the winery is not too much sugary, so it won't become too alcoholic wine and has a good acidity, a good pH. The last one that we harvest is the opposite way around. It has a lot of sugar, so it will develop a wine with a lot of alcohol and has low pH. So these two extremes... We usually blend together these two extremes to have a better balance. Sangiovese that we harvest at, right at the proper time, at the right time, which happens to be in between these two extremes, is usually the best one. And we, we usually fill four or eight concrete vats with the grapes that harvest within that week, about it's a week time, more or less. And don't ask me the reason why, but one of those eight vats every single year comes out to be better than all the rest. Interesting. Yeah, there's no explanation. There's no, actually, there's no really explanation. It must be something that has to do a lot with the chemical composition of the grapes uh, or, as we like to play around, has to do with the magic of the harvest. <laughs> we, we don't know. But what we know is that that wine becomes the cup of water and it don't, it, Everything, every every vintage is almost pretty much the same. One vat outstands all the other. So we put it in the concrete vat until February. February, the wine is ready. And we bottle the wine. And we just leave the wine age in bottle so that it's um, there's no contact with... We try to have the, the wine not in touch with wood, in touch with the concrete, the, le- the minimum amount of time possible, and so to have the fruit preserved as much as we can. At least this is the, the idea behind the wine, because the glass in the end is really neutral in terms of flavor that can uh, release or issue to the wine. Um, so we think, we think that once the wine is bottled, it's safe. 
it will age by itself. It will do its own stuff without any interference, without any external interference. I didn't get to taste Capocori during Five Star, so tell me about it. If I had Capocori in my glass right now, what, what would I be tasting? What would I be smelling? What's the wine like? Well, it's cherry, basically. There's a lot of fruit. There's a lot of fruit coming out, and that's the first impact. Typical Sangiovese. Yeah, right, exactly. So the, f- the fruit comes to your nose immediately. When you taste it, the fruit opens up to other uh, secondary tastes and flavors, so you can feel a little bit of spice. There's a lot of tannins, as we use a lot of um, whole cluster berries, but these tannins are ripe, round, and smooth, and so they kind of pave the palate, the tongue, to the taste of the fruit and the taste of the spicy, and the, the spiciness that it comes with the, with the Sangiovese. It's quite long on the palate. I would say it's medium-bodied. It's not really, you know, one of those punchy wines that hits you on the nose and stays with you for 15 minutes. But it's a, it's a length of a taste and palate in, back in the nose, which lasts enough to be enjoyed either by itself or during a meal, a light meal, probably better than a heavy, um, juicy, fat roast. Well, it sounds delicious and beautiful. I'm going to have to find some and give it a try myself. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you how you're doing this year. We've been having a very hard summer, terrible weather, and Peronospora and yeah. hail and everything. How How is your vineyard? How is things in, in Marema? Well, we, we were lucky. Uh, we had hailstorm, but at the very, very early in the season. So we had some damage, but nothing really serious until today. There's always a chance that through those breaks, through those scars into the stem, into the, into the stem of the bunches of grape, some disease can get to the berry itself. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Peronospora has been a disaster. Peronospora has been a disaster. We were skilled and lucky, but for the first time in years and years and years, I had to use copper, which I didn't use for over the past five years. Instead of copper, using some clay, which contains some aluminum particles. particles. So, but this year was, was it definitely a year of copper. Yeah, terrible year. Well, yeah, yeah, well. Didn't, didn't lose too much production, but surrounding us, all around us, the damage has been quite impressive, quite, in, quite intense. Yeah, it, it's going to be a, a difficult, I think, and a sad harvest for a lot of producers in Italy all around the country. So many problems. What do you think about you know, climate change? Is this, is this something we're going to have to learn how to deal with? Because these weather patterns are really strange, getting stranger, I suspect. What are you planning to do to sort of protect your vineyard from these problems in the future? Well, I've planted some new vines, and I've started to use different rootstocks. Okay. I'm, I'm using the Sicilian ones. Right. Uh, yeah, well, don't, don't forget that we learn how to farm in Puglia. Puglia is very, it's south, southeast of Italy, actually. We were southeast of Italy. So the weather, the, the, the heat waves that we are facing here in Marema today are exactly those that we were facing 30 years ago in Puglia. Somebody says that there's the, it's like a desert line which uh, moves toward north at about 30 kilometers per year. And 
I tend to believe that this is exactly what's happening. So what we're doing is we are getting back to what were our habits and our traditions. So using really more performing rootstocks, um, you prune the vines the same way, but then you manage the canopy in a different way. You try to leave not too many leaves. You try to have the plant a little bit more compact. Uh, and then you have to get to be ready. You can't really rely on a pattern. This is what really makes farming nowadays challenging. There's no, no longer, you know, you say, well, it's springtime, so it's going to rain. Maybe you have such a dry spring, and then all of a sudden, at the beginning of the summer, here comes pouring rain that lasts for weeks or months. Uh, so bye-bye patterns. You have, to, you have to deal vintage per vintage with what, what comes. I think that's so true. And I, I'm very interested that you're using Sicilian rootstock because uh, we work with Professore Attilio Scienza here. And he talks a lot about the fact that people growing vines are going to have to adapt and use new rootstocks and, and think, you know, think a little bit more carefully about how they're organizing their vineyard. It sounds like your years in Puglia really helped you be ahead of the game on that. So I'm happy to hear that your vineyard's doing well in Marima this year. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm really proud of having more than forecasting. I have foreseen the incoming problems a couple of years ago. And so when it was time to pick up the, 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 the rootstock going in a, in a quite unusual direction, a lot of criticism. I got a lot of criticism, but I kept my idea and I stood by that. And I, today I'm really happy with it. Well, it sounds like you're you're doing well, and as as we know, the wine was a winner. I love what you're doing in terms of being biodynamic and biological, and being so careful with your land. So we hope you have lots more continued success and a good uh, vendemia this year. And yeah. hopefully, I'll be able to come down and visit you one of these days. Thank you so much, Umberto, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, and you're more than welcome. Anytime you come, come and visit. It will be a pleasure. I will. I will. All right. Have a good afternoon. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.